0: Well, good morning, Oak Mountain. It's good to be with you this morning. In case uh, you're new or we haven't met, my name is Chad Walker, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. So good to be with you. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Galatians 1. That's where we're going to be at today. We're in the series of Galatians this semester, as this is Bob's last semester preaching, and of all books that he could pick, he picked Galatians. And if you've been a part of the Newcomer Life Group for any period of time, you've heard Galatians this is his book, and this is his swan song of this semester. Uh, so I hope that you enjoy this, if, whether you've heard it already or not, with Bob and the Newcomer Life Group. I personally love Galatians, too. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And Paul, uh, sorry, Bob started off last week with explaining, kind of setting the scene for this whole book of Galatians. But let me ask you before we get started in this. How many times have you felt as though God has saved you? And you know that you're saved by grace. But part of you feels as though you need to do something about it now. Just last week in our life group, the discussion came up of saying, I know that I'm saved, but it almost feels like it's up to me now that God saved me. Jesus did his part, and now I've got to do my part. And it was a fascinating comment that was made, but it's very true that we're so tempted today. Even though we have the book of Galatians to see that it's tempting to think that there's more beyond the gospel, that there's something beyond this, that God's grace is good for you and me, and Jesus has given it to you and me and poured himself out generously, but now we got to do something. Now it's up to us. We need to add something to it. And as Bob talked about last week in Galatians 1, if Paul were to get into our minds and into our hearts and see how often we are tempted with believing that, thinking that, and even living that out, he would be astonished. He would be astonished with you and me to see how quickly we all want to desert the good news of God's grace. So we look to God's grace to save us, but it's so tempting to think, now I've got to do something to prove it or give it to God in some sort of way to know that I was worthy of being saved. And that's that legalism that so subtly creeps in in our culture to think we've got to be good boys, good girls, and God will love us. And sadly, that is distorting the gospel of God's grace. That is not God's grace. That is not the gospel. And Paul would be astonished with us in the same way that he is with the Galatians but it's tempting, right? It's tempting to think that God's grace can really be that good, that that's all we need, not just for salvation, but for all of the Christian life. We've heard the gospel many of times to know this really is about God's grace. But similar to the Galatians that heard it from the Apostle Paul's mouth that we're saved by God's grace, we too are also tempted like them to think there might be something beyond this. We need Jesus plus something else. We think that we're saved by the gospel, which means good news, but as Tim Keller puts it, we're almost living as though it's good advice. It's almost as though there's something we must do. And Paul wants to make crystal clear in this passage today and all throughout Galatians that it is not about what you do. It is all about what has been done. There's nothing beyond that. It is black and white. That it is all about the work that God has done through Jesus Christ. So that we do not need anything more than the gospel. So if you can, please stand with me. And let's read Galatians 1, starting in verse 11 together. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he, God, had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me or in me, In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing you before God, I do not lie. Then I then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. May God bless the preaching and hearing of his inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative, and gospel-saturated word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much. the good news of your gospel that has been proclaimed and that we hear that we receive that your love and your favor rest upon us securely comfortably peacefully in Jesus Christ father let our ears and our hearts be pricked in such a way to know this in such a deeper way let us behold you in your glory that your gospel of grace is so good to us And you're worthy of all of our praise, and you're better than anything else in this world. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the gospel really is enough. So let's look at the first thing, three things today. The first one is believe the gospel is divine revelation. Believe the gospel is divine revelation. See, God supernaturally works in the way that you and I believe as believers, The fact that you understand the gospel, if you are a believer, is because of a supernatural work that God does in your own life. Many people can hear the gospel, but not everyone necessarily believes the gospel. And we see it clearly here, even from Paul's words, the way that he began to believe the gospel. In verse 11, he's talking about how the gospel is from God. It's not from people. It was not invented. No one made it up. In verse 12, that he received it straight from the Lord. That's exactly like you and me as believers. The gospel, the good news of God's grace is something that is received. is something that is given to you by the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, he says, he was set apart by birth. Uh, Set apart before birth, I'm sorry. And this is a, a picture of God's sovereign grace of his people. His grace is that good that he thought of you before the creation of the world, before you were born. It's not just the Jacob and Esau thing, that he hated Esau, but he loved Jacob. No. If you were in Christ, he thought of you before you were born. And his grace is so good that he poured it out. And he planned it out in such a way that you would come to understand and believe him for who he is in Jesus. And this is a great truth for us to consider. It is by sheer grace we are saved. Verse 16, he says, That God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Have you thought about that as a believer? That it pleases God to reveal his son, Jesus Christ, to you. The grace is oozing off these pages as Paul's describing his own life here of the divine revelation that it takes God's supernatural act to help us to believe the gospel. And that is grace, it is totally by grace. Read about Paul's words in Acts. You can turn there with me in Acts chapter 9. that He describes the situation and where he actually began to believe, starting verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then down in verse 18, it says, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and he was baptized. Something like scales fell off of Paul's eyes. That's how the Holy Spirit works. That is part of the divine revelation of this great gospel of grace that we believe happens supernaturally that you and I are blind to even be able to see how good His grace is until the Lord supernaturally intervenes and removes the scales from our eyes. That's how Paul literally describes his experience of coming to know Jesus. If you were to read in 2 Corinthians 3, he describes it this way, starting verse 14. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. Here's Paul describing the divine revelation, the supernatural act of removing the veil from our eyes... Removing the scales from our eyes to be able to see Jesus for who he is. The good news of the gospel, that we're saved by grace alone through faith. It takes the supernatural act of the Lord to be able to do that. The gospel is enough. And as Paul's going down the road to Damascus, I love calling this a a glorious interruption. That's what happens in his life. He's totally interrupted his life on, the way to, on his way to Damascus, and a glorious interruption happens. It reminds me of a, something that happened not too long ago. I think 2019, we went to uh, London with Serge, where Katie Blackburn is about to go to serve again. And we were in a van, and there was a, a rental van that we had, and the driver was driving, and I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and I'm thinking, this is an opportunity to share the gospel, get to know this guy. We'll see where it goes. And in the conversation, I start asking a lot of questions about himself, and he tells me he's from Somalia. There was a civil war. His family fled. They came to Britain, starting a new life, learned a lot about him. In turn, he naturally began to ask me questions about me. So glad you asked. We start talking about my life, and because, as C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis puts it, you talk about the things that you love. I can't help but want to talk about Jesus so I'm telling you my story, and I'm explaining, you know, just how I came to know the Lord as I'm explaining who I or telling about who I am. And at the end of it, it was interesting because he said, you know what? I've heard a lot of people tell me about Jesus, and your story's a little different than other people's. I said, really? How's that? He said, most people or everyone that I've talked to has told me how their life, something bad or hard or traumatic had happened. Your story's not like that. Your stories seem like God just came and interrupted your life. So that's interesting. Never thought about it that way. But similarly to Paul, my life was on a trajectory and a path and headed a certain way. I think I know where I'm going to go and I want the control. I like to know where I'm headed. Just like Paul is heading to Damascus and in the process of living for myself, as Paul lives for himself, as we have lived for ourselves, God divinely and gloriously interrupts our life and reveals to us to remove the veil, remove the scales from our eyes to see Jesus, to see him for who he is, that he's better than anything else in this world. And what a glorious interruption that is. It was worth all the interruption. And Paul's testifying to that here, that that is the gospel, that God did the work. Paul did nothing. So I'm talking about a glorious interruption here, but I want to ask you, has God gloriously interrupted your life maybe you can't think of a time where that actually happened that you fully understood the gospel this might be the time now to ask the lord lord would you help me to see you for who you are i know and i acknowledge it takes you supernaturally doing it so would you remove the veil from my face and the scales from my eyes to see that you are worth more and you are more beautiful than anything else in this world you're the only thing alone that can satisfy me and the desires of my heart. Jesus, I want to see you for who you are, but I know it takes you to do that. So would you do that in my life? Maybe you've known the Lord for a long time. Praise God for that. Maybe you were four years old when you came to Christ. As we pray for our kids, they wouldn't know a day they don't know the Lord. That is great. But even as a four-year-old coming to know the Lord, that in itself is a supernatural, divine revelation and work of God for them to be able to see Jesus for who he is. Praise God for that. It's an amazing work of the Lord. That is the work of the gospel that Jesus does. So let's praise God for even what might be called a boring testimony. There is no boring testimony the supernatural work of Jesus. But maybe you've been a believer a long time. And I want to ask you too: has the Lord gloriously continually interrupted your life? How is he pursuing you, shaking you up, not letting you be comfortable, not letting you live in the status quo, but continually interrupting you in a way to get your attention, to help you see, to focus on him for who he is? This is how the Holy Spirit works. This is how the gospel works. It will invade every room of your heart. And that is a good thing. So let the Lord yield to him and let him have his way with you in that. So, not only is the gospel enough for us in divine revelation, but secondly, believe the gospel for divine transformation. Divine transformation. We talk about transformation a lot. We value that because we see it from God's word. We want to talk about it, we want to be about being transformed. And that is the business of the gospel. That's what it does. That is how it works. That we are divinely transformed. And I say that on purpose, that this is where it gets sticky as a Galatian. What are you doing to transform your life is a really sneaky way to slide into legalism. The gospel is what transforms your life. God's grace will transform you. Otherwise, Titus 2, 11 through 13, would not be true. That it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. There's so many other places in Scripture that we see that it's the Lord's grace is the one that changes us from the inside out. It's not the outside of the cup that matters whether it's clean. It's in our hearts that's being cleaned up. What we cannot do, it is divine transformation. And the gospel does this. And the gospel means good news. And some of you need to hear that. It is good news that the Lord is pursuing your heart and changing you from the inside out. And he is pleased with you. And that grace will continue to transform you. But Paul uses his own story to explain this, right? We see from verses 13 through 16 that he's explaining his story. And how does he start? You've heard my former way of life. Judaism. Now, there's not a lot of us that say Judaism was my former way of life, but what is your former way of life? We, you know, 2 Corinthians 5 says that the love of Christ compels us. I think Paul would say here, Judaism compelled me. It motivated me. It stirred me. It made me charge on. But what about for you? What controls you? Would say, you would say is your way of life. What is that? Where do you try to take ways and tighten down your control of your outcomes? What are you willing to die for but never fully living? Verse 14, Paul describes his life as progressing, advancing, and comparing himself to other people. What a trap that is. How very anti-gospel it is to compare ourselves to other people. This relative morality gets us nowhere But Judaizers were really, really good at that. If we read Paul here, we read Paul in Philippians 3, he would say, I had it all together outwardly. I knew what I was doing. I had probably the cleanest, squeakiest, clean morality that you could have in Judaism. And we see from Philippians 3 in here that it really doesn't matter. We're really not clean. Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul is really not clean but he's comparing himself to others. It's almost as if we're standing before God and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? And we just want to say, well, I'm I'm better than the people around me, right? The relative morality gets us nowhere in God's economy. Nowhere. And this is where also, this is where the ought-tos and the shoulds happen. As Brennan Manning would say, stop shoulding all over yourself. (laughs) If you've ever heard that before. That is part of the legalism coming in here. If you believe in Jesus, but these Judaizers are trying to tell you what you ought to do and what you should do, it's Jesus plus something. And Paul's saying, no, it's not. You are saved by grace alone and nothing else. There's nothing beyond that. If you add anything to this gospel, as Paul said here in Galatians 1, it's not the gospel any longer. But in verse, I'm sorry, verse 15 and 16, we see something change. The pronouns that God, I'm sorry, that Paul uses in 13 and 14 is I. You've heard about me, my former way of life, how I progressed in advance, how I persecuted and tried to destroy the church. But in verse 15, it changes. It's a lot like Ephesians 2, the way he talks about the gospel, how we were objects of wrath, but God who is rich in mercy, we see here, Paul saying, this was my life, but God, God did all these things. Verse 15 talks about how that he was set, God set, apart, set me apart before I was born. God called me by his grace. Verse 16, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. He sees that the story had changed. The narrative of his life was that he was at the epicenter of his universe thinking he had gravitas here and God would be pleased with him. But God has now shifted Paul's story of his own story to say, I'm not the main character of my own story. It's Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. God has done the work. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has paid the price and works in us in such a way that transforms us from a former way of life To a new life. And what power and willpower and ability did we actually have to go from a former life to a new life? And Paul says zero. You have no ability in and of yourself to have a former life and gain a new life. It only happens through the good news of this gospel. And I will fight and I will contend for this so that you don't die in a way of legalism with a false hope. It is worth the fight. And that's what Paul is doing here in this entire book of Galatians. I love this quote by John Stott as he comments on this whole chapter. As he talks about Paul's life, he says, In my fanaticism, I was bent upon a course of persecution and destruction. But God, whom I had left out of all my calculations, arrested me. And he changed my headlong course. All my raging fanaticism was no match for the good pleasure of God. All of my raging fanaticism was no match for the good pleasure of God. Folks, that's good news. If you're passionate about things other than Jesus and center your life on that, to think that God would be pleased with you and love you by anything outside of Jesus, you're gravely mistaken. You're miscalculating, as John, has said, John Stott has said about Paul here. The calculations always fall in favor of Jesus. You know, we can't argue with a changed life, right? I I could probably contend and argue that if I see a commercial about a really good pizza changing my life, I don't know if I would agree with that, as so many commercials do. But you really can't argue with a changed life. And that's part of what Paul's testimony is here. And if you know the story of Martin Luther, his life is very similar and echoes a lot of similarities of, of Paul. They're both monks, priests. Passionate, young, brilliant, taking the world by storm. But one other thing we know about them is they're restless, they're joyless. So much legalism, internal turmoil of the conscience that's happening for both of them here. And and in Martin Luther's story, the same thing happens with divine revelation and how he was transformed as he's talked about his own story, as he was in despair of his own conscience that he could never be good enough for the perfect law of God, he said that he read Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. And as you read those verses, you might be aware of those. They're very familiar verses. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It is the power of God. It is, the righteousness has been revealed by God from by faith and for faith. As has been written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther writes that when he read that, it was a Damascus Road experience like Paul. He said it was almost as if the gates of heaven had been opened up to him. It's an amazing corollary story there of Paul and Martin Luther's life. But you can't argue with a changed life. You can see the grace of God had gripped Paul in such a way that his trajectory had changed because this gospel is enough, God's grace is enough, and changed and transformed Paul in such a way. And in the same way with Martin Luther, in such a way that it began to be a part of, of Reformation, of the Reformation, of getting back to what is God's grace and justification by faith alone, but not by works, God used these men to do this. The gospel is enough. You know, Colossians 4, it talks about, Paul says, pray for opportunities for the gospel to go forth and devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Don't underestimate your own story. Your own story is very powerful. Your journey that you've been on with the Lord, people need to hear that. You cannot argue with a changed life. It's my favorite way to talk about Jesus because it's just me talking about, like Paul here, this is what God's done in my life. I can't argue with it. I don't, I don't even, as a new believer, I didn't even have the right words for it to, other than just say, God had begun to do a work in me. I, I don't even know what's going on. That's okay if you say that. Your story is important and valuable, and it should be shared. And so if you see those opportunities to talk to people and share Jesus with people, take those. And maybe you don't have a dramatic testimony, that is okay. Because as we talked about, everyone that's saved, everyone that calls on the name of Jesus is a work of the Lord. There's plenty of things to talk about because you're in a relationship with him. You can talk about what he's showing you and revealing to you right now. How he's transforming you, how you're different than you were a year ago or five years ago. This gospel will transform you. And you getting opportunities to share that story is important for people to hear. So not only is it divine revolution, a revolution revelation, and divine transformation, but also believe the gospel was divine restoration. So the gospel was so powerful. Not only does it transform you, but it transforms this world. The restorative power of the gospel in my own humble opinion, is so underestimated. And I think it is in so many ways because we don't think about very often how supernatural God's grace really is. The work that the Lord does is so beyond this world. The scope in which he works in his power is so beyond anything you can imagine. The gospel really is enough. Not only do you see it in Paul's life, but you begin to see In these short verses, the scope and power of how the gospel is restoring beyond him. These Judean churches, he said they've never seen him. They've only heard about him. So the gospel that Paul is believing, that God has revealed to him, is now beyond any physical scope or relative impact Paul could have because the gospel is going to go forth. Think of it this way, that Paul was once, as he said, trying to destroy the church, which he could never do, and to violently persecute is now the one that is mending and gathering and bringing back together. That's part of the restoration of the gospel. As God has restored Paul's heart, He is using that and it's spilling over in a way to have that agent of change, that that effect of God's grace that restores relationships and people in this world around us. How is it restoring you? How does God bring restoration to your soul that you know that you are so thirsty and hungry for? How is God restoring your relationships and your family and your friends? How is God restoring your view of work? How is God restoring your view of money? How is God restoring your view of the lost? How is God restoring? That's what the gospel does. It is an agent of change in that way. I'll end with this story. Many of you know of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a pretty famous missionary that books, articles, and a few movies were made about him. Jim Elliot was a missionary that felt a call to go to Ecuador to um, share the gospel with an unreached people group. And he was untimely, but timely in, in the Lord's way, killed as a martyr in the 1950s. The way they got to this tribe, there was no place to really get to them. They were so remote. They had to fly like a little Cessna plane to land on a riverbed in the middle of a water, just long enough to land and just long enough to take off. And they came a few times, bought, brought gifts. Things seemed to be going well. And then one day when they landed, they got out bringing gifts. And unbeknownst to them, ten natives got out, or Jumped out and ambushed them, and they were killed. They were speared. And their bodies, sorry, their bodies lay in the water, blood floating downstream. And it was a pretty gruesome scene. Now, the Lord has done a huge work that I don't even have time to get into right now about how he has been a part of this village coming to know Christ. But I have a friend that works for Compassion International. And he said, he, just two weeks ago, he came back <coughs> excuse me, came back from Ecuador. And in Ecuador, he witnessed 12 believers that were being baptized in that same river. Very powerful scene. He said it was so amazing to see these 12 men being baptized in the same river that Jim Elliott was killed in. He said the pastor had something very powerful to say. He said, you know, you're being baptized in the same river where, <clears throat> excuse me, where Jim Elliot came so that you could hear Jesus. But more importantly, Jesus, Jesus came to save you. Jesus laid down his life for you, for them, for me. Jesus and the good news of the gospel is what restores. He's restoring that village that martyred Jim Elliot. And now they're coming to faith, much like Paul. It's amazing to see the restorative power of the good news of the gospel. So with that, let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much that we're saved because of good news. And the good news is that you treat us with grace, that you have exhausted all of your wrath, all of your judgment, all of the consequences of our sin, our rebellion, our disdain, our apathy, all of it. You've paid for it all on the cross and put it on Jesus. And now we are free. We are free to love you with all freedom in Christ. And we thank you that we live in an indestructible union with you. That we are now found holy and perfect and blameless and spotless without any wrinkle in Jesus. And you do not demand us to add anything to this great gospel of grace. You are pleased with us. And for that, we praise you. And you are worthy of all of our praise because you are better than anything else in this world, Jesus. And we thank you that the gospel is enough. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you can, please stand with me for the benediction this morning. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And may the Holy Spirit help you to overflow with that peace and hope in Jesus' name.